Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Passion drive and patience what brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has got you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you'll always find exactly what you're looking for And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Austin Angels history by a rookie, and it is a one nothing Halo League. Let's get right to it. FanDuel.com slash boring. FanDuel.com slash boring. You're welcome. Win. Get free money. Win. Get free money. There you go. All right. At BB isn't boring. Twitter account, social account. Go to them. We want to finish strong in the regular season when it comes to the socials. Follow. Tell your friends. All the above. All right. Home run and call of the day. You just heard it. Logan Hoppy going deep. Wayne Rendazzo with the call. Great way to start the day, home run call of the day. Speaking of a great way to start the day, we had some great podcasts yesterday. We obviously had we had on Colton Wong, we had Brandon Gomes, we had on James Outman, three people who gave their perspective heading into the postseason. They always all of the Dodgers heading into the postseason for the Dodgers. We had the veteran, the GM, the rookie. There you go. So now we turn to another front office guy. We love talking about how the evolution of the front office in the Major League Baseball has taken place. This one, J.P. Ricciardi. I've known J.P. since we did, uh, well, really, I followed him around in 2003 when he was GM of the Toronto Blue Jays. And he was working for the Oakland A's, Billy Bean's right-hand man, GM of the Blue Jays, worked for the Mets, now worked for the Giants, a lot of different organizations, a lot of different philosophies. There is nobody better equipped 
to give sort of perspective of where G, where front offices have come from, where they're going, what has happened along the way, the good, the bad, all of the above. And joining us is my good friend John Tomasi of NBC Sports, NBC Sports Boston. We both talked to JP, and JP's excellent. Excellent in giving perspective of maybe where front offices have gone wrong, where have they have gone right, right, how things have changed. So this is just another example of baseball isn't boring, trying to keep you updated on how things are in Major League Baseball. And I feel like as we creep toward the offseason, it's more important than ever. I Like I said, there is nobody better equipped than J.P. Ricciardi to give us the what's what when it comes to the landscape of decision makers across the great game of baseball. All right, here you go. Here's JP, along with myself, John Tomasi, Baseball's and Boring, front office report. All right, I never lie. And so when I say that one of my favorite people in all of baseball is on with us now, JP Ricciardi, one of my favorite people. I owe a lot to you, JP. This is my well, pay. I, this is my payback having you on a podcast. <laughs> geez, usually it comes in the form of a check, but I'll I'll take it this way. <laughs> uh, so uh, JP Ricciardi, uh, special assistant to the president, baseball operations for the Giants, the San Francisco Giants right now, has done a ton of. Um, I really like JP, and I'm not. So I'm going to build you up here. So just sit back and enjoy <laughs> it. Um, but. You know, when you look at doing a lot of different things in a lot of different ways in this world of baseball, you know, you you were right in the heart of the whole money ball A's. And, you know, I know that, like, that's not a good way to phrase it, but to give people a reference, right? You know, the money right. ball A's with Billy Bean, yeah. Billy yeah. Bean's right-hand man. Then you the GM of the Toronto Blue Jays had a good run there. Um, then you, uh, you went to the Mets, correct? It was from yeah. the Blue Jays, right? The Mets yep. with Sandy Alderson was there as well. Had a good run there. Um, and now with the Giants. Am I missing one at all? No, nope, you got it. You okay. Got it. Well, but and so when I say that, like, you you have a lot of um, great experience and a great perspective, it's because think about that. Think about the things that you went through, JP, about, you know, you were sort of – and I remember – Man, to this day, I cite stuff that you say. I remember going like through that money ball, which was like everybody was dug in one side or the other. And I remember you saying, hey, listen, when you build a house, you, you know, you're going to want to get a lot of advice from a lot of people. right? <laughs> so and it, it was so black and white. Scouts were digging in on their side and and analysts were digging on their side. And maybe some of that hasn't changed, but that was so heightened back then, JP. But you were in the middle of it, and I think that you were one of the first to sort of to be able to balance both when you went to the Blue Jays and have that dynamic of working the American League East, and then uh, and then obviously with the Mets, you have the New York market. You're trying to do a little bit of that there. Why spending probably a little bit more money? I mean, I, I think so, right? Am I? I don't want to miss. Not a lot. Not a lot. But not a lot. Not like now, not like now. It's like, you know. <laughs> Certainly not like now. <laughs> um, and then obviously now you, you with the Giants, which is, you know, you we we know that sort of they think in different ways there, and and you come from the the, but you, I want to say you you come from the scouting background, but you you have the scouting foundation. Why being integrated into like everything else, but not being integrated like a lot of these uh, executives. 
I mean, you were integrated early, early, right? I mean, with Oakland. Yeah, I mean, when we started, it, uh, there was very little analytics. Um, but I always thought that uh, anybody who was in baseball, I remember talking with Gene Michael, you know, so many times and him telling me how important on base was and how much he looked at that with the Yankees. And, you know, I don't think anybody who you want to say old school or whatever term you want to use, I don't think anybody was ever oblivious to analytics. I mean, you turned over a baseball card and you saw how many at-bats a guy had, you saw how many hits he had, you saw how many home runs he had, you saw how many RBIs he had. So you paid attention to that. Um, I don't know of too many people who are running around looking for two ten hitters. Uh, but, you know, uh, early part of it, we really weren't analytically driven. We were just looking for good baseball players. Yeah, and 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 by the way, we're going to bring in so John Tomasi of NBC Sports. I would say NBC Sports Boston, but you're more of a national guy. I was today. I am so national. <laughs> you're so national. national as they get. Well, first of all, you have a good mic and a good backdrop, so you know that you know GPA. You know that John's a TV guy. You know <laughs> that's a big shot now. You know, both you guys. I knew you win. i'll just say the first time i interviewed jp i think i was 27 and i am not 27 anymore (laughs) well i'm happy to see see how far you guys have come you've done a great job well i remember when we were doing chasing steinbrenner um and i remember uh, john was actually one of the ones who i let read it like early on because i value his opinion so much but people are saying, what's this guy going around? Why is he in Toronto? Like, what is he doing in Toronto? Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I, but I, I love you also, of all the things that you taught me, you also taught me, JP, of how, like, a general manager acts during a game, which oh. at least <laughs> at least some general managers. That was some of my favorite. Being in the, in the, in the box with JP, John, oh, my God. That was <laughs> – we still have – I have guys who quote have, – have some of my quotes from the box that they still they still share. I'll tell you a funny story. I played with this kid in college named Mike Kernan who was a big-time lawyer in St. Petersburg. And he calls me up one day and he says, hey, you guys are playing the Rays. you mind if I come to the game? I said, yeah. I said, you can come in the box. So uh, he comes in the box and Alex Anthopoulos is my assistant. And, you know, it's like full metal jacket from the first pitch to, to the ninth <laughs> inning. And he, he turns to me at the end and he says – it was great seeing you. Don't ever invite me to a game again. <laughs> that was the worst experience of my life. Did you do that 162 games? Said, yeah. The master gunnery Sergeant Hartman was in the building. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember being there and and uh, Carlos Tosca was the manager, correct? I mean, and so yeah. – uh, and so, Fortanian starts was brought into the game to face Manny Ramirez. <laughs> and like all of a sudden, I don't think I was facing it, but all I heard was the vibration of you pounding the desk. Uh, Taking uh, starts. <laughs> there's another backstory to that one too, but we won't go into it. And I signed I signed Tanyan as a as a uh, a free agent. I signed him in the I think it was the twenty seventh round. I drafted him out of Quinsigamon Community College. So I I've known Tanyan since he he was in high school. Uh, well, but yeah, but that, but, the, but you talk about analytics. I think going back, I don't think the analytics supported bringing Tanyan Sturts in against Manny. No, Rivers. no, no. That, there's a lot of funny stories with those two. 
I remember telling Johnny Gibbons one time, don't bring Josh Towers in because um, he cannot get Manny, he cannot get uh, uh, Ortiz out. So I said, uh, just whatever you do, don't bring him in. And 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 uh, Towers that year could have threw his glove on the mound and beat the Yankees. I think he beat him three times. He could not get uh, those guys out in Boston. So anyway, before the game, we tell him, don't bring in Josh Towers, whatever you have to do. So I look up, we're beating the Red Sox, the bottom of the ninth, and Towers is warming up. And I'm, I've got like steam coming out of my ears. And I said, if Gibby brings him in this game, you know, I'm going to be like like Bill Veck when he said, if the midget swings the bat, he's going to drop him with a, with a 30. <laughs> I said, if, I, I said, if uh, Josh takes one step on that, the warning track, we're going to drop him. He's not even going to get to the mound. So anyway, we go. game goes over. We win the game. I go down. I'm talking to Gibby. I say, hey, you managed a good game tonight? I said, but you got to tell me, why did you have Josh Towers up? He says, I was just pissing you off. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I can totally see Gibby, like that of all the guys, like it's a good line, but I can see him like just busting balls. Well, you you got to remember, I mean, I played with Gibby in the minor leagues, so we go back a long way. And, uh, you know, he kind of, he knew how to get, push my buttons, but that was, that was priceless. Well, perfect segue. And John, you can weigh in on this as well. So the, I want to get to a lot of sort of the dynamics of how things have changed, if they've changed at all, should they have changed, and, you know, the how front offices can and should work. And a big part of this, JP, is exactly what you said, which is relationship with the manager, right? Uh, the front office with the relationship with the manager. And we hear all these stories, and I think it's it's the same thing with Moneyball. It's like it can it, – it not isn't always necessarily black and white when – when you say, oh, that the that front office, and I don't know, but like the Billy Bean, did he make the lineup for the for the for the manager? No. Right? Not that I know. Right. No. So I don't remember. Right? That so there you go. I mean, there that was a narrative. And yeah, there's input and in, in especially with the analytics now, the flood of analytics. From your perspective, JP, what is the best way and again you have a a great perspective of this what is the best dynamic when it comes to this day and age of baseball of a front office dealing with a manager well wow that's that's a loaded question in a lot of fronts um i don't know where we've gotten away from uh hiring someone we believe in and and trusting them to run the game um you know you look at uh snitker you look at dusty baker you look at, uh, you know, a lot of these guys that have had success, and, and there's all ways to have success. You know, Kevin Cash, I'm sure uh, they make the lineup. Of, I don't know this for a fact, but I've heard that they have a big say in how the lineup is is put together. Um, so I guess there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, but I just have a hard time understanding why we've gotten away from hiring a good person that we trust and letting him run the game. Uh, so I think – front offices have really emboldened themselves to feel like they can, you know, dictate every part of the game. And I, I have a hard time with that because at some point the manager has to rely on what he's feeling in the dugout and w- as, as to what's going on in the, in the course of the game. I mean, I, I go back, I think of Rich Hill being pulled out of the world series. I mean, he was throwing great. There was no reason to take him out of the game, but someone thought that, you know, going third time through the lineup was not going to work. 
Uh, and guess what? It didn't work because they didn't leave him in and he lost the game. So I guess I don't understand how we've gotten away from letting people do their job. One thing I've always wondered, JP, is how that filters down to the clubhouse. Like, does that cost the manager respect? How does that impact the manager-player relationship? You know, because players know, is he even pulling the strings here? Whose decision is this? It seems like it would hurt the manager in his own clubhouse. Yeah, and I think it does. I think it really does. I think players, you know, players aren't stupid. Players know what's going on. Uh, they see the dynamics. Uh, and what happens is they, when they start seeing these moves being made, and they're not working out the way they think they're going to work out, or they don't have enough confidence in the player, the, the players start to get upset and they start questioning everything. And, you know, I think sometimes it just opens up for uh, – it can make a, a pretty messy situation. I mean, you almost the, – the, the go-between is almost becomes one of the most important guys, right? However that – whatever that go-between looks like. As far as in terms of the front off, you know, in terms of the the you say the 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 ultimate decision maker is going to be with a lot of things is going to be whatever you want to call him, GM, president of baseball operations, whatever it is. But there has to be there has to be someone also to whether it's to the manager or to the players to make to to get the message across. Because that's a big part of this day and age, the message. And you were always great at it, man. Like you were like the that you're a people person. You can talk to people. You can be honest with people. But this is that's not the case, although and it has to be the case that the message is so important to everyone's going to receive it in a different way. Right. Well, I, I once again, I, I don't know where we've gotten away from having uh, relationships with with people in the game, I, whether you're the general manager, whether you're the assistant, general, whatever you are. It's important that you have relationships with players and, and you have relationship with the manager. I, I don't understand how. You know, you can almost have an ivory tower effect where I'm going to sit up in the front office and I'm going to just dictate what goes on down there, but I'm not going to walk down there and talk to these guys. Players, I found, respect you more and and really feel uh, emboldened and a part of what you're doing when you spend time with them and you talk to them and you explain to them, hey, this is what we're trying to do. Um, you know, you may not agree with it, but this is what we're trying to do. And you get their input. And sometimes they make you sit back and say, hey, that's a really good point. You know, but I, I think we've gotten away from people skills and personal relationships with players. And, and listen, sometimes you have to have a really hard conversation with a player. I had to release Frank Thomas, Hall of Famer, oh. you know, but I sat down with Frank and we had a really good conversation. And in the end, Frank realized what was going on. And he said, JP, you do what you have to do. He goes, I respect the fact that you came to me, you talked to me. Uh, so. I just don't understand as a, as a business where we've gotten away from interacting with the players. You're in it together, aren't you? So yeah. I don't know why you would try to try to make it a, a family atmosphere where you have dialogue with the players and the players have dialogue with you. JP, where were you on the continuum? If like Dave Dombrowski, when we covered him with the Red Sox, he was on every road trip in his suit. He was always there. Uh, then there's the ivory tower approach that you're talking about. Where did you fall on that continuum? I, I would be more of the ilk like Dave. I, I just – it's hard to stand up there in the in spring training, the first meeting you have, and tell the guys, hey, I'm in this with you, and then you're never seen. I think if you're in this with them, then you have to show these guys that you're absolutely there, you know, whether it's watching batting practice, whether it's, you know, every game you're at, whether it's, you know – 
I didn't like being in the clubhouse that much because I feel that's the player's place. But just to be around that they know that they can talk to you. And I've I've had great relationships with so many players over the years that the relationships were formed from the start of spring training, which is a great time to really spend time with players, right through the season. And, you know, if guys are going through a tough thing, they can talk to you. If guys are unhappy, they can talk to you. You can't always be there for the happy stuff. you got to be there for the tough stuff. And I just thought that being with the team as much as you can, letting the coaches know you support them, listening to what they have to say, listening to the players, and obviously you got to make tough decisions, but you're, you're basing it on knowing people as opposed to just guessing. Well, I, I want to loop back to sort of the where did the the human element leave and and why did it leave? And I think that uh, part of this is – is you know, I, I hate to do it, but I keep coming back to the analytics. JP, you know, you know how many analysts like we these organizations keep having more and more and more and more. And I'm not saying like they're bad people or they don't deserve their jobs. But the problem is when you are investing that much into something, you almost have to justify it. And if those people aren't justified, you know, then they're like, well, what are we doing? And so it's almost like we're investing, we're trying to keep up. And this is a big part of it, trying to keep up with the other teams in this respect and not just valuing the simplest thing, which is exactly what you just talked about, which is, a, you know, it feels like they're, they're in, in this race to keep up with everybody in terms of all this information, that's where we're losing this other stuff. Am I wrong? Well, well, I think the analytics are good. Listen, there, there's nothing wrong with analytics. Everybody wants as much information as possible. But I wonder how much information is there? It's baseball. You know, it's like ad nauseum. We, we've, we've turned this over and turned this over. We've got so many people working in analytics departments. What are they coming up with that's new? And not only that, but which organization is so analytically driven that they're winning world championship after world championship after world championship. Now, listen, if someone is doing that, sign me up. I want to know the recipe. I want to know what you're doing that I'm not doing. But I haven't seen a group that's analytically driven that is dominating baseball. I like the analytic people. They make you think. They bring things to the table. I would like them to be as open to the analytics be as open to the baseball aspect when someone's telling them about certain things that, yes, your numbers say this, but did you ever think about this? Did you ever think about that? So I think they just have to blend together, and it takes someone to make those two groups come together. It's mm -hmm. almost becoming us versus them, and it shouldn't be like that. JP, is there a possibility, and this may be a loaded question, but that having all that information actually makes it harder to make a decision? I think it can lead to that. Um, you know, you guys have been around the game a long time. When I watch a guy throw a breaking ball and a guy freezes and he doesn't swing, and then he comes back with another breaking ball and the guy does swing and he looks absolutely abysmal. And some people say, don't triple up on a guy. Well, I'm sitting there saying, triple up on the guy. What has he <laughs> done to show you that he can't hit this? So I don't need – an analytical spray chart to tell me that I'm watching what's happening and I'm sitting there and I say, there's a front office guy or whatever. And that would be a question I would go in and ask the pitching coach after. Why didn't you just triple up that the three pitches? You could have been out, saved yourself more pitches. You could have got that guy out. 
why would you try to sneak a fastball up and away and all of a sudden he gets a base hit the right field or he fouls the ball off and he keeps the at-bat alive? Um, so I know the numbers tell us certain things, but the game is telling you something right in front of you sometimes. And I think we've just lost the, the ability to watch what's happening and, and, okay, maybe I don't do exactly what the numbers say today because this was my feeling as the game was playing out. And I think we've gotten away from that, and we've we've stopped people from thinking like that. Well, it's interesting because you know we always John and I would always see you in the in the media dining room with the scouts. Like that's where I first met you, I think, in Pawtucket. Um, you know, scouting, going out in the field, and and it was flooded with guys. And I know John goes to the park all the time now and sees the media dining room, and he sees that like I do. Where's everybody? Where's where, Tom Clark? There where's Tom know. Clark? Yeah, where, where is everybody? You know, I was in Atlanta with the team uh, about a year ago. I went into the press room. There was one writer there, nobody else. And I was talking to the guy. I forgot his name now. And I said, where are all the scouts? He says, they don't come. Wow. So we don't even scout big league games anymore. So, so you know, right, me- wrong, right, wrong, or indifferent, we, but- we just we don't do it. But you just gave an example, so I guess I'm going to ask you sort of to give another example. So give me like as a scout, as a guy that came up a scout, and your son's a scout now. And yeah. and by the way, it's nailed to get nailed the drafting. Shane Drohan, excellent job. Um, and but as a scout, you say this is if you had to sit down with them and sort of make to say this is why this is important. Give me the the most important part of the equation when you say this is why you send somebody out because this is another thing we're going to go through JP at this time of year you know like it used to be a big deal like advanced scouting right especially for the postseason I mean and we have plenty John knows there's plenty of examples of oh you know the advanced scout saw this and this is why Matt Holiday got picked off or whatever it was but give me the the best the case for this is why people should be there. Well, getting back to my son, I got to plug him a little bit here because uh, I believe the Guerrero kid was named the minor league pitcher of the year. Oh, he was a, so- oh he's a Guerrero and, uh, guy too, huh? Yeah, Dante signed him in the 17th round. So uh, I was happy for him today to, to, to find out that both uh, Hickey and Guerrero were all-stars and double-A and then the minor league pitcher of the year was signed by, by Dante. So I was really happy for him. Um, but you know, I think what, what, and maybe I'm making this too simplistic, but I had a relationship and I still have a relationship with guys like you. I got information from you guys and I gave you guys information and it wasn't information that was going to, to, you know, destroy the Oakland athletics or was going to destroy the Toronto Blue Jays. It was information like, yeah, this guy's just not pitching real, 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 real well right now, so we're going to move him to the bullpen. Uh, you know, just things like that. And you guys would pass on information, and it wasn't gossip. It was just like, yeah, the last five games he's checked that, hey, maybe they're not telling anybody, but this guy's got a little hammy, so he's probably not going to go first to third. This guy – you know, he found out last night he was pitching and he wasn't ready. Um, you know, the game is made up of relationships. So when I walk in a park, I know coaches and managers on the other team. Not that they're going to give you a ton of information, but they might give you one thing that you can go back and tell them, hey, listen, these guys aren't going to run because this, this, and this. Uh, 
they might not use this guy because he's he's a little he's a little tired. Um, you're not going to pick that up by watching video. You're not going to pick that up by looking at numbers. You're going to pick up stuff like that that could help you, especially in a short series. So I think just having connections in the game. It's the same when you go to the winter meetings. You walk to the winter meetings, teams tell you what they're looking for, and they'll tell you why they're looking for it, and that's how you get information. So I think any way you can get information by talking to people uh, is helpful, and you can get it in various ways, whether it's other scouts, whether it's you know team members, whether it's you know traveling uh, uh, parties, uh, writers. I mean, there's just a lot of information out there today, and there's a lot of ways to get it. John, you got something? Uh, I, I was going to change the subject, so I don't know. Yeah, you no, go, no, go ahead. No, that's good. So, I, so I, and I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I don't know if I ever give you any information ever, JP, but I appreciate any information you gave me. So there you go. Uh, but yeah, but you're, and like I said, I wasn't giving state secrets away. You know, with, with, with and and I'm smart enough to realize that you guys aren't going to give me information all the time if I don't give you something too. So that's part of the give and take. If I want to get an insight from you guys or insight from anybody, I've got to be willing to give a little bit back too. But that's part of the game. And I, and like I said, not giving intimate secrets away. Right. You know, you got to give something to get something. That's well, well, I mean, you know, the New York writers, the Boston writers, the Philadelphia writers. I always found them to be very, very informative and helpful. Yeah, and and, I'm, and we're not like you said. It's not only just hey, this guy's arm was sore. It's and I and you get this around, especially when in the the winter meetings, the off season, trade deadline. Is this guy a good guy or a bad guy? That's it, hundred percent. Right? I mean, and you know, and and that's a and that's another part of it, JP. Which is, I know that you're very sympathetic to having a clubhouse of hey, you know what? We can't have a bunch of assholes here. You know, we have to have. We have to have because you guys be around each other for a long, long time, it, and and I think that's that's another thing that sort of have gotten lost a little bit. I think it's coming back around a little bit. There's the recognition of it, but you need the you need the glue guys, man. Like they might not be as quite as good as you want, but you need the glue guys, right? Hundred percent. You know, you want to have a good clubhouse, and sometimes that twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth, twenty sixth guy, you know, he's got to be a glue guy. Uh, you don't want that guy who's not going to play a lot, you know, being a guy that's going to disrupt your clubhouse. And the only way you're going to find that out is if you dig on these guys. Yeah. JP, I wanted to ask you something about how the AL East has changed. So you're GM in Toronto for a decade. If there was a third wild card, you would have made the playoffs probably three or four times. Uh, instead, you were just always on the outside because of Red Sox, Yankees at the top. So first I'm wondering – how has that has the job changed just in that respect that more teams are in it? I guess I'll start there. Well, I think uh, as far as you mean playoff wise, yeah. have any ability? To win? Yeah, I think I think the originally I liked having more teams in, but now I'm starting to not like it because I think it's almost become like that 16th seed in the NCAA tournament. They're so excited they made the, the tournament. And then they get there, and you're like, okay, how are these guys going to advance? You know, a lot of those teams just don't have the firepower. So, I guess I'm not as fired up about it as I was. I guess if I was the general manager of a team that could get to the playoffs, I'd be happy about it. But from a fan, I look at it now, and I'm almost like, 
I'm not so sure I'm the biggest fan of that third wild card. Um, but the division itself, I think, has changed. Uh, but I don't know if it's going to be a change for a long time. I think the Yankees are always going to be the Yankees. I think they're always going to, you know, really try to put a good product on the field. Uh, I think right now they're just going through a little bit of a, a bump in the road. But I, I don't see the Yankees falling back to being the 1967 Yankees. Uh, for a long time. Uh, I think that's the one thing the Yankees can do is they can recover real fast. Uh, Boston, I think is, it remains to be seen. Uh, I think Baltimore, it took them five or six years to do it that way. Uh, and and I they've got some really good young players. I don't know if everybody's going to subscribe to doing it the way they, they did it. Uh, Toronto's got some good players. I don't know if there's is what long-term sustainable. So I think the division is very strong. I do think the Yankees come back at some point in the next few years though. So I don't know if it's going to be real like a cyclical division, but I think it'll always be a very strong division. But when you look at, it's interesting because in, when you look at the, the, how you're building teams, um, a big part of building teams is, is trades. I've never made a trade, never made a trade. You have made a trade. John, I don't think you've ever made a trade. I don't know. Maybe you did. I don't know. But uh, but you've made a trade, JB. You made multiple trades. People, and I've, this has been a conversation a lot recently about winning, having to win the trade by 80% instead of 51%. Um, and I think this goes back to the conversation we had earlier in the podcast about how sometimes you can get paralyzed by it. When you went in to make a trade, how did you view it? How was, your, how was that conversation like? And I know that... Every GM's different. We have the scene in Moneyball of Billy Bean, you know, get Shapiro on the phone, right? Which I, I don't yeah. imagine that, that Billy ever, ever traveled to Cleveland to make a trade like in the movie. No, no. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the one the one thing I used to share with Billy all the time was when I when I was Billy's right-hand man, I used to say to him, Billy, here's what I want you to stay focused on. Don't worry about who we're giving up. Worry about who we're getting. Because if we're getting who we want, it shouldn't matter to us who we're giving up. And I've kind of kept that philosophy, uh, you know, through my career. And, you know, I was I was fortunate to make some good trades. I traded for Edwin Encarnacion in Toronto. I traded for uh, Jose Batista in Toronto. I traded for uh, Troy Gloss, for Scott Rowland, for uh, Marco Scudero. I mean, these guys all were all pluses for us in Toronto. And didn't really worry too much about who we were giving up because we were getting. I remember when we traded for Lyle Overbay. I, I called Doug Melvin and said, "I, I know I heard you got to move Overbay." And he said, "Yeah, we, we think we're going to move him." Um, he says, "So I said we have interest in him." And he said, "Okay." Uh, he goes, "Well, we got interest in Dave Bush." I said, "Okay." I said, "We'll do Dave Bush for uh, for uh, Lyle." And he goes, eh, "Calls me back." He goes, "I think we're going to need a little bit more." He goes, "I think we could, would you be able to put Gabe Gross in the deal?" And Gabe Gross was the Blue Jays' number one pick a few years before I got there. So I said, give me a second. So I asked the room. I said, what do you guys think? I said, you want to put Gabe Gross in the deal? And some guys were like, no, this and that. I said, guys, we're going to get 50 doubles, 280 hitter, gold glove first baseman, and we're going to get him at an affordable price. We're not letting Gabe Gross get in the way of this deal. So thanks. But I called him back and said, we're going to, we'll take over Bay and we'll give you Gabe Gross. That's how we made the trade. So we didn't let Gabe Rose get in the way of us getting a proven major league player. And I love Gabe. He's a great kid. But 
We needed the first baseman and we needed the bat. And he was cheap. I love. How that. much do you think that's changed? By the way, I mean, you look oh, at. There's no shot of doing. There's no shot of doing that. <laughs> maybe, maybe with Alex in in Atlanta. Uh, maybe with Perry in L.A. Uh, maybe with Dave Forst in in Oakland. Uh, Brian maybe, Cash, right? What's that? Dombrowski. Dombrowski. Like yeah. uh, I've made deals with, with Dave Dombrowski. Easy, easy to deal with. Uh, so I, I think there's some guys out there that it, it's still... Uh, this episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's still doable, but I think going back to the original question, some teams feel like if they don't really like slam dunk win the, win the trade, you got no shot. And I found that it's 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 an exercise of utility trying to deal with those teams. It's also when you say you mentioned with Gabe Gross, what you say he was the number one pick. Like that's their that's their thing. Like they they we 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 have to justify this. I'll give an example where um, you know Kim Ng, uh, she did the uh, JJ Blade. JJ Blade was the fourth pick overall. Right. In the, in the, yeah, I scouted him. Yeah. Right, and so. She trades him for AJ Puck, a pitcher they like, ends up being a good reliever for them, closer for a while. And and a lot of people I think would be paralyzed by, well, this is a fourth pick in the draft, right? And and you know, for better or for worse, but I don't think Blade has set the world on fire. Maybe you know, maybe he'll have a great career, but people get paralyzed also by that, I would imagine. We have to justify what we did before, you know? Well, there's so much social pressure now. That you have to be above that. I remember one time Alex was telling me I, I was talking about trading a guy, and he goes, he "says Jay, we control this guy for five years." I says, "Alex, he stinks. We're going to control it. We, we control a guy for five years, and he stinks. Big deal. I don't care how much service time we got. We've evaluated him. He's not a good player. So I don't care if we control him for five years. We don't want him. Let him go." It's the same. I never really got caught up, and I still don't get caught up in the service time. You know, if if that guy is going to make my team a better team, I'm not going to worry about his service time because of a lot of things. One, I can extend him earlier, and if he wants to, he's going to stay. Two, he might not be in that upward plane all the time. He might go backwards, and you have to send him down, so he ends up with broken service. You know, and the other thing is, if he's a really good player, he's probably not going to stay with you beyond free agency. <laughs> so I never get caught up in the service time because I think my job is to put the best players on the on the field. I can't worry about, well, his service time is going to burn out. Well, if his, I remember when we signed uh, A.J. Burnett. It was a big signing for us in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Just that, got a little bit. Um, right. And, and um, uh, the closer. Um, B.J. Ryan. Yeah, B.J. Yes, exactly. Well, we signed A.J. Burnett, and, you know, he's he's kind of barking about coming to Toronto. So I'm saying, well, we have to be real creative. So I said to him, look it, we'll give you an out after three years. And we'll give you a five-year deal, but we'll give you an out after three years. And so that kind of, like, piqued his interest because we our, our AAV was, was going to be higher. 
And so a couple of guys said to me, why would you do that? I said, well, look at it this way. If we don't, he might not come here. If he does come here and he leaves after three years, then we probably got three really good years out of him that we wouldn't get from anybody else. And at that point, everybody's happy. And he had three great years for us. If you go back and look at his three years in Toronto, I think he won 40 games and under a four ERA with a strikeout per inning. So I looked at it like three good years as opposed to, to none. So we had to be creative, but we got the play. JP, it sounds like what you're describing, it, there's this push for efficiency in baseball. Young players are efficient. Service time controllable players are efficient. And it makes me wonder, can exploiting that, can that become the new inefficiency in a way? If everyone is thinking that way, can you, if you're running a team, exploit that by going the other way? I, I think there's a lot of people out there that just value young players so much that you can. Um, I don't know if it'll happen, but – and I'm not saying that you shouldn't value young players. I mean, we don't want to be like George Allen and the Redskins, uh, you know, with the, the over-the-hill gang. I mean, you still need young players. I think if you look at, you know, like Cassis is a good young player for the Red Sox. Uh, you know, they got a couple other good young players. But, you know, one thing the game has taught us is you're not going to win a World Series with young players. You're not going to win a World Series with all young players. It's good to have young players, and it's good to have contributing young players. But if you got young players and they're not contributing, and they can lead to bringing in something that is is, is going to help your major league club, I don't think you should be adverse to uh, you know at least listening to what those guys can bring. Yeah, I mean it's the Dodgers. All, all we're talking about here, all the stuff we're talking about, is just a balance. It's yeah. a balance of how you put everything together. I don't find it hard. I think it's it's. I think we've just lost common sense. I think in in some ways we've just lost the ability to communicate with other people. We've lost the ability to value uh, uh, experienced people in the game. Uh, we've we've swung to so far to one side. And I go back to the original question I asked you guys: which organization is cutting edge and what we think is cutting edge and doing all this stuff and is dominating our game? And I haven't seen anybody that's won four or five World Series in a row. Yeah, it's funny. I'll come back to it. 20 years later, or 21 years, 22 years later, you know, this is sort of the the division of the, I mean, you know, JP, like when Moneyball came out and we were doing the Chasing Steinberg stuff, like it was, that was the, the first time, oh my goodness, there was such this conversation about black and white, either or. And it's that's what we're talking about 20-something years later. Well, you know, what people don't understand about Moneyball was we had no money. So we had to be creative. And I could give you all the examples. I mean, a combination of Billy Bean and myself, you know, we got Matt Stairs as a six-year free agent. I saw Matt Stairs play more than his parents saw him play in in, uh, in Pawtucket. I knew Matt Stairs, and I told Billy that this guy would – he's going to be cheap and he's going to hit home runs for us. We got Carlos Reyes as a Rule 5 guy. We got Geronimo Barroa. We got – so many guys that we we had opportunities that other teams didn't. So we could be creative. And that was our one thing that we could do to put us on a power with acquiring players. The Yankees didn't have to do it. The Red Sox didn't have to do it. We had to do it. So that's where Moneyball was created. And, God, it took on this whole new life. And all of a sudden, you know, no one liked scouting and – God, it was so it, it was terrible. But you know, it 
it just really was evaluation, and we took it to we took it to Toronto. I mean, we we got Frank Catalanato as a non-tendered player, became a really good player for us. We traded for Scudero, became a good player for us. We we traded for Jose Batista. No one even knew who he was. I never thought he'd hit 300 home runs with the Blue Jays, but you know, arguably one of the greatest trades in Blue Jay history. And I mean, they just put his name on the ring of honor, so we did something right with that. <laughs> and that was really. We watched Jose Batista play in spring training, and I told Alex he could play third, he could play second, he could play first, he could play the outfield, and he could DH, and he's got a little bit of power. We can get bat-bats for this guy, and he can help us. I didn't think he was going to hit 300 summer home runs. We just gave him an opportunity. So, I don't know. We, we, we've lost our way in so many ways. <laughs> how, do you, how, made it so- how important do you think it is paying for certainty? Like, there's no such thing as certainty. But, you know, like, I'll give you – the Dodgers examples, for instance, and, you know, like their certainty is at the top of the order. Their certainty is Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. Um, and while you're integrating, while you're figuring it out, it's all right. It's, this comes back to the balance thing. But for, for, for you, how important it is to get the A.J. Burnett as sort of the anchors, these other guys, while you're figuring that stuff out? Because some teams, they don't even want to do that. They're like, we're just going to get the – well, we'll throw a bunch of crap against the wall, and hopefully it'll stick. Well, I think the Dodgers are a good example. You know, they go after high high profile players, and they're not afraid to spend the money on those guys. But they have a really good scouting director, Billy Gasparino, who came from us in Toronto, uh, and Billy has done a really good job of drafting. So when they need that player, they've got a guy to come up, and and so their drafts have been very very good. But they've signed really good players. And, you know, there's a couple of things. I think if you look at baseball and you go back and look at the last 20 years, I would venture to say the team that won the World Series was probably in the top 10 in payroll. So you got to spend a little bit of money. You, you, you know, there's very few little engines that could that have won the World Series. I think you can go back to the 03 Marlins. Uh, Talk about a total outlier, you know, really, really good young players that that hit. But you have to have good players. You think Mike Krzyzewski apologizes for getting into every McDonald's All-American's house? <laughs> you, you think he sits there and says, my process is so good that I could take <laughs> over uh, Fairly Dickerson and I could take him to the final four? <laughs> Listen, our game is made up of you need really good players. If you don't have good players, whichever way you can get them, draft them, free agent, trade for them, you're not going to have a successful organization. And I think it takes a blend of all of those things. Do you have much interaction with Coach K during the Fingleton year? <laughs> no, they never recruited him. They, uh, ne- they never. Yeah, in case people don't him. know. So JP was – and this is really like when I first started to, talking with you, JP, we talked – because I was coaching um, high school basketball. You were coaching a holy name, high school basketball – and we would, we, he was like, oh, I got a good play. I still remember what the plays he showed me. But you had a kid, Neil Fingledon, who went to North Carolina, seven foot four. Um, yeah, so that's what you're talking about. But yeah. Actually, it was, uh, they did a great documentary on Neil. They, they called it The Big Smooth. And I don't know if you guys know, but Neil passed away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very, very sad. He passed away. I think he was 36. But this group in England uh, did a documentary on him, and they had this screening in. Uh, the premiere was in Worcester in May. It was awesome. It was so good. Really, really good. I hope Netflix or someone else picks it up because it's a really good story. I was I was amazed at how good 
they uh it wasn't a story about him just being a basketball player it was about his life and being big and going into acting and the the guys from England did a really good job do you miss coaching do you miss coaching hope i i miss being involved uh I miss being a GM, and I miss coaching high school basketball. So. <laughs> well, me too. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I still coach, and I'm still like it's. It keeps my mind elsewhere. So, uh, it, yeah, it's the greatest game to coach because there's no, there's really no downtime. You know, baseball is <laughs> great to coach, but it's got a lot of downtime. You know, but basketball, you're always going, and yeah, we had a lot of fun. Well, I've, I've been using this analogy, JP. I used it with uh, your manager, uh, Gabe Kapler, just the other day where we were talking about, you know, obviously he's an intense guy, and I don't think it really resonated with him, but I said it anyway. I remember when I first started coaching, I became a lunatic, right? So, and, and maybe this is how you felt when you first became a, the head guy, the GM. But as a player, you control yourself. As a coach, all of a sudden, wait a second, I'm controlling five guys? now at least that's how you think initially and and i don't know like as a gm if that's how you feel if that's how you felt like these are my guys well i I think if you're a competitor once you put on the uniform of that team and and whatever role it is you you want everybody pulling the rope the same way and it's it's the head person's job to get everybody to buy in. And that was one of the most exciting things I found as a GM because I wanted the clubhouse guys to be mad when we lost. You know, I wanted the traveling secretary to to be ticked off when we lost. And I wanted them to be excited when we won. So being a leader in any role, whatever it is, it's an exhausting job because you have to be out there and you have to be amongst the people. And you have to get the guy who cleans up Fenway Park at the end of the night when you leave, be able to say, hey, uh, John, hey, Rob, how you doing? You know, and you want to be able to say, hey, you know, Tony, how you doing? How's your family? Everything OK? And you, can, you can't do that if you don't get involved with the people. So I've always found in any leadership role, um, you've got to make people feel like they are a part of this. And it's not just me. And you guys are here. It's all of us. And that's a big challenge in any form as a leader. John, you got anything before we uh, we let JP I go? Just ha- I just have one last question. This is, I know this is a Brad Foe pet peeve. I wrote about it the other day. I don't know if you can explain this, JP, but why can't the person running the team be the general manager? Why do they all have to be presidents <laughs> or vice presidents or whatever? I just, I want someone to come in and say, I'm, you know, Brian Cashman, I'm the GM. I, why, why is no one a GM anymore? We were, we were just talking about this before. I, I, I think what's oh, happening. sorry. I messed that up. No, no, no. I think, I think we were, we were recording. Yeah. Okay. I think what's happened is um, because if you're the general manager, someone could poach you by giving you a title of president of baseball operations. So I think we've gone crazy with the titles. Uh, my title in San Francisco, I, I can't even remember it, but it's like special assistant to the president of baseball operate. I mean, it's, it's the title on top of a title, but I agree with you. I mean, it used to, the sad part is all the guys that are president of baseball operations, they're the GMs. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is, right? It's everyone's yeah, just bumped I mean, up, and, and but it's the GM's the assistant GM, and yeah, right. the assistant uh, GM yeah. is what an intern used to be. <laughs> right, it's pretty much the uh, the worst kept secret in uh, in baseball. 
But, By the way, um, you can never do the Claude Rains project now, JP. The, remember the Claude Rains project? Which one was that? That was, <laughs> see, see, I remember Jason Steinbrenner. The Claude Rains project was when you were scouting Aaron Hill. Oh, uh, Aaron Hill. Yes, yes, yes. Aaron, yeah. So, so, and the reason I say you could never do it, so you called it, so basically you liked Aaron Hill. I think it was LSU, right? LSU uh, right, right, infielder. Right. And I had a good career in the majors, and um, and he uh, and you you like you pretending like you didn't you weren't scouting him, you weren't saying a word about him, but you knew that he was your guy. And the Claude Rains obviously played was the actor that played the Invisible Man. So I always thought that was there yeah. should be there should be more names to to uh, things like that. Well, we've we've had a few of those, but uh, you know, listen. At the end of the day, it's baseball. It's supposed to be fun, right? It's supposed to be. You know, I, I think everybody has gotten so pressured in all of these jobs that they almost become paralyzed now because they're so afraid of how social uh, media is going to. Uh, and listen, social media has gotten bad, but you can't be paralyzed by what social media is going to say because if you do something right, they're going to find something wrong. I mean, look at poor Belichick. I mean, the guy won six Super Bowls and and people are second guessing him left and right. So I think you can't be afraid when you do these jobs. You can't be afraid when you're dealing in big markets. And, you know, you've got to have the ability to just trust, you know, what you think is right and, uh, and not be afraid to go out and try to be the best you can and, and not worry about what the kickback's going to be because it's, it is baseball and it's supposed to be fun. Well, I, JP, as always, you nailed it. Nailed it. I don't know how many, like, you, I don't know how many podcasts you do, but you're really good at this too. Right, John? The first one I ever did. No question. Is that true? No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been on Zooms with our, our scouts and stuff like that, but I've never done uh, a podcast. Oh, like, like John, I mean, is it natural, Bro, right? You know what? I'm going to mail him one of these NBC backdrops because he's already. <laughs> oh, there, there. John, put the check in the mail first. <laughs> there you go. See, <laughs> you, know what my, you know what my uncle told me at my wedding? <laughs> I've been that? married 40 years. He said, I'd give you the $1,000, but I already sealed the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds well, very so John, Italian, and I can send say Send me the that. check, John. <laughs> uh, NBC plays in money. I pay in T-shirts and smiles. So thanks, uh, JP. Oh, great seeing you guys. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I, I remember you guys when you were just cutting your teeth, and I'm proud of how, how far you've come, and you've done a great job. And uh, the people around here are lucky to have guys like you. So thanks for having me. Thanks.